and we'll pick up on page 21. Welcome everyone. As we resume our series in When We Have to Choose, we had last week off because I was uh, out of town, and we have today and two more Sundays to, to finish, but we'll be able to do that. And then on October the 13th, we'll begin a new series in this hour, and that series is advertised in your program, and we have invitations for it out on the Information Center, a stack of them for you to take several and to use to invite friends and family to that series, October 13th, during this hour, from self-help to God's help. And it's going to look at common problems that we have, but look at them from God's perspective, fear and anxiety and worry and so on. So from self-help to God's help, that'll start uh, October 13, and we have today and two other Sundays between that time to finish the the series that we're in. I want to make uh, some announcements. And then we'll get into the notes. But our midweek program has resumed as of this last Wednesday. Our Wednesday program uh, is on hiatus during the summer and then starts up again in September. So everything started back up this past Wednesday, 7 o'clock here. We have classes for everybody. So we have nursery and toddler. We have uh, community kids for elementary age. We've got the high impact for teens. And then we've got three classes in what we call Community Institute for Adults. And the three classes are How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, and that's a class that that I lead, and we encourage everybody who comes uh, through our church to go through that class. And then we've got a couple of others that are foundational classes that we want everybody to have. That's one of them. So if you you weren't here Wednesday, you only missed the uh, introductory portion, I'd encourage you to to jump in. And then we have... uh, the book of Philippians, a survey of the book of Philippians. Dr. William Combs from Detroit Baptist Seminary is teaching that class, and that is designed for people who have gone through our foundational classes. Now, if you insist you don't want, don't need the foundational classes, we don't, we don't try to force you, we just nudge you, and if you say no, then you can take the uh, Philippians class. So we have a number of our folks taking that who have already completed the foundational classes. And then a number of our men at the same time are participating in our men's fraternity it's the third installment, third of three-year uh, program in what's called Men's Fraternity. So we have those three adult classes going on on Wednesday nights, and there's a notebook for each that you need to purchase. So if you have not done so, then you register at the Information Center. I encourage you to do that before you leave today, and they can give you the appropriate notebook to uh, take with you and to review for Wednesday night. That's all at 7 o'clock each Wednesday. Next Sunday evening is our annual celebration dinner. It's really our anniversary dinner. Our church started 12 years ago this month, and we celebrate uh, our anniversary every September with what we call our celebration dinner. So that will be next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock, and it will not be here. It will be at the Westfield Activity Center. We've had other events there, so most of you know where that is. But it's by the Trenton High School. In fact, it's right across the street from Trenton High School and the uh, Trenton Public Library. Uh, and there's a map for that out on the information center. But we need to know who else coming, and we need to know today because it's being catered, and uh, there are tickets for that. So purchase your tickets, and the purchase of the tickets will tell us how many people are coming, and then we can let the caterers know that. So if you didn't do so during the refreshment time, before you leave today, purchase your celebration dinner uh, tickets. And for that celebration dinner, we don't have much of a program. We enjoy each other's company. We have the dinner, and our program consists really of just two things. 
me talking briefly about God's grace to our church over the last year and a few things that we're looking forward to in the coming year. But the main thing is, it is the one occasion in the entire year that we open up to the church body for testimonies of God's grace in your life. And uh, we spend 45 minutes to an hour hearing about God's grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And it's always a highlight for us. It's always very encouraging. And I tell you that so that you'll think about that. Think about how God has worked in your life this past year. And think about giving a word of uh, testimony that will encourage the uh, church family. Guys, the men's retreat is two weekends from now. It is Friday and Saturday, October 4 and 5. It's a Friday evening, and then early afternoon it will be completed on Saturday the 5th. $75 for everything, for your lodging, for your meals, uh, and for the activities that they have there. But again, for that, we need to know very soon who all's going, so register for the men's retreat. And then just looking a little bit further down the road, October 19th is our annual Family Fun Hayride, and that's listed in your, in your program. All right. Some of you have asked me about my daughter down in uh, Clearwater and how she's coming along. Uh, she's uh, doing very well. In fact, we have a representative from Clearwater Christian College here today. He's talking to our, our teenagers in there in the high-impact class. But uh, Lainey is doing extremely well. Um, I'm a little disappointed in this. <laughs> Thought, thought she might miss the old man a little more than she does, but apparently not. And so she's doing quite well. The times when she does say, you know, she calls Mama and she calls Annie, and then every now and then she remembers there's a third member of the, the household, and, and she'll say, is Daddy around? And so I get on the horn, and uh, I, as I'm talking to her, I say, so what's going on? And she tells me what's going on. And a couple of times I've said, so now, okay, you've told me all you're doing, they have classes there too, right? <laughs> you know, books, stuff like that. I kind of thought that check was going for that sort of stuff. So she is having a very good, a very good time, and she is doing well with the school as well. So we're thankful and thankful for your prayers, and thanks for, for asking. We left off on page 21 in our series, When We Have to Choose, which, as the name suggests, is about decision-making. And we have seen that in order... For us to make proper decisions, they all, big and small, need to be made within a a good understanding of what the end is, what our purpose is. And so several weeks ago, in those notes that you have in front of you, we saw that we, we need to begin with the end in mind. And so we tried to go over a clear understanding of what our end, our purpose, our objective given to us by God as His people is, and then to evaluate our decisions in light of that. Will this decision advance the purpose? Will it advance me toward, toward the goal? So that is, in a nutshell, is how we framed the, the material, and we're trying to hone in now on how we make individual decisions, and as I say, big and small. And that brings us then to, to page 21 and Roman numeral 2 principles for biblical decision-making, finding out what's right with it. So that's the question that I'm encouraging us to ask ourselves when we make decisions. What's right with the decision? Now, you, I think immediately when I read that, when you read that, you see that that's not normally the question we ask. The question we normally ask is, is what? What's wrong with it? And our approach is, if there's nothing wrong with it, then, it, then it's okay to do. Uh, well, certainly, if there's something wrong with it, it's not okay to do. That's true. But, but 
the question for us is not just is something neutral morally, but is it positively advancing the purpose that God has for us? And there are all kinds of things that can be morally neutral. They're not inherently evil. They're not bad in themselves. But nevertheless, they cause us to be derailed and distracted from our, from our objective, from our goal. And so God has given us a purpose to achieve. If you weren't here when we went through that, these sessions are all recorded at our, our website, so you can go and listen to those with notes in hand. God has given us a, a purpose to carry out and to pursue, and we need to ask ourselves, not is it neutral, but rather will it positively advance me toward that goal? And if we only take the morally neutral approach, is there anything wrong with it? Then we can easily find ourselves getting involved in all kinds of otherwise okay things, avocational kinds of things, activities, hobbies, all sorts of things, that take our time and distract us from the objective God has given. So I, in my observation of God's people in His church, my observation is that it's not that most people are, and certainly not people in our church or like-minded churches, are, are out doing outright, overtly sinful things. It's just we're doing other things. We're doing all sorts of other stuff and using our time for all sorts of stuff we just like to do to whittle our time away. Now, notice how I said that, whittle our time away. But that's actually incorrect, isn't it? Because whose time is it? Time is a commodity that was created and is given. And it belongs to God. And it is to be used, the time that He gives us is to be used for His purpose. So as I said several weeks ago, contrary to the approach many of us take, the Christian life is not just one big Bill Naps, you know, just God's waiting room, <laughs> just biding our time until Jesus returns or until I die. But rather, until I die, I am to be active in pursuing God's, God's mission. So that's why we ask then what's right with it, not just what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it just says if it's morally neutral, then go ahead and engage. What's right with it says, is this positively going to advance me toward the goal that God has placed me here for, now hear this, and left me here for? Right? I mean, why, why does God bother to leave me here? I mean, if all he's concerned about is are you going to heaven, he already knows that. So do I. He saved me, I'm going to heaven. So we already know the answer to that, so why did he leave me here? Well, he's got stuff for me to do, that's why. And he wants me to use his stuff, his time, his treasure, and the talents that he's given to each of us to advance his purpose. So that's why we ask the question, what is right with it? Now, how do we arrive at an answer then to that question in the decisions that we make? Well, we say on page 21, decisions must be made by conviction. Our decision-making must be driven by inner convictions about what is right or wrong. Some people evaluate their choices by feeling for them an act is proper if, it does not, if they do not feel bad about it. Such an approach subjects God's revelation in the Bible to the emotions and feelings of the present moment. But a conviction is a settled assurance about the rightness of a particular choice. It does not deal with feelings but facts. 
Just as a conviction in a courtroom should be based on the truth of the case, so the conviction in our lives must be based on the truth of God's Word and His revealed will for our lives. Decisions made by biblical conviction may not feel good, right? But they'll be right. So that is the popular way, I'm convinced because it was the way I learned convictions as a kid. Grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, heard a lot about developing convictions, having convictions, having your own convictions about things. And that was a good emphasis because the emphasis was don't just ride on the coattails of your parents or your church, but develop your own personal view on things that you are convinced is, is good and right. So that's all, that's all good. But the way convictions were, were explained, it was often feeling-based. And there were people who had convictions and people who didn't. And as a teenager, I always noticed that the people who had convictions were much more miserable than those who didn't. People without convictions seem to be having a lot more fun. Sounds like a disease, actually, doesn't it? You know, uh, stay away from him. He's got convictions, okay? <laughs> Hope it's not contagious. And that was kind, of the way, was kind of the way it was. But it is not that subjective, I've got convictions, you don't, but rather a more objective, taking a look at the principles and precepts of God's Word, the mission that He's called me to, and asking myself whether the decision at hand is good, is right in light of that. And being convinced is a good way to think about it. A settled assurance, we say in the first line of that second uh, paragraph. A settled assurance about the rightness of a particular choice. Now, how do you, how do you gain you know, these, con- these convictions? It's based upon God's Word. He's given us His Word to tell us His will, to give us principles by which we are to make these uh, decisions. And 2 Timothy 3.16, which is quoted in the middle of page 21 under point B, I'll give you point B in a moment, but 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for four things. And notice the four things, useful for teaching, and then it says for reproof. Uh, And that word reproof is the Greek word that is often translated conviction. So you could write the word conviction next to reproof. So 2 Timothy 3.16 gives you these four things. It gives you teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And those four things are in order. You can't get those out of order and, and and have them work. You have to have teaching before you can develop conviction. And you have to be convicted about something being right or something you're currently doing being wrong before the third thing can occur, correction. And then the fourth thing is settled habits, training, discipline in righteousness. So there's a logic to 2 Timothy 3.16 in those four items, teaching, conviction, slash reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But the point of that is the, the conviction, the con- being convinced about the rightness or the, the wrongness of something I'm doing and thus ceasing it is based upon the teaching of the Word of God. So decisions must be made by conviction. Secondly, B, they must come from Scripture as the Holy Spirit <clears throat> opens our mind. So I, I read Scripture and 
and, and then we say the, the Holy Spirit opens my mind. Now, what the Holy Spirit does in opening our mind is not give us the meaning of the passage. The meaning of the passage is found by studying it and putting it in its context. What the Spirit does then is a work upon the mind of the believer that causes him or her to welcome and receive and accept the truth of God's Word. That's contrary to the unbeliever who doesn't have the Spirit. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept, does not receive, does not welcome the things that come from God. It is only the man or woman with the Spirit who is able to do that. And the Spirit moves upon the mind of the believer when he or she studies God's Word so that we welcome and accept and receive the truth of God's Word and appreciate the significance of that for us. So I've studied that. I see that. I see that's what God wants from His people. That's how God has acted with His people in the past. This is what God's objective is for His people in the present. And then I come away from that with God's Spirit moving on, on my mind and, and, and welcoming that, receiving that, and appreciating the importance of that so that I now want to see that put into action in my life. So these decisions are made by conviction. They come from the study of Scripture as the Spirit opens our mind. The word for that is illumines, the work of the Spirit's illumination on the mind of a believer. And to illumine means to turn the light on. And the Spirit turns the light on. Oh, that's what God wants. That's what God says. That's what I should be doing. Or I, this is what I should cease doing. He turns the light on. Because I have the Spirit, I want that. I welcome that. I receive that. I see how important that is. So to illumine this room means to turn these lights on. And to illumine our minds means for God to intellectually turn the light on for us. Convictions must come from Scripture as the Holy Spirit opens our mind. And then thirdly, they must be developed. Biblical convictions must be developed. Now, how are they developed then? Well, very straightforwardly, number one, the bottom of page 21, we are to obey the precepts of Scripture. So if the Bible just says straight out, do something, don't do something, well, there's, there's nothing to talk about. Or at least there shouldn't be. <laughs> but we in our sin, you know, God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews 10.25. Ah, uh, let me think about it. <laughs> right? If a God just gives a direct command, then that's not up for debate. That's a precept, a direct command of Scripture that God Almighty says for you to do or not do. Obviously, things like the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not lie. You shall not, bear, you shall not steal. You shall not murder. These are straight precepts of Scripture, direct commands given to us that are not up for debate and frankly don't require a whole lot of thought. I, I have to obey them. That's what God says to do or to avoid. We must obey what we know. Many people spend much time obsessing about things they don't know while ignoring what they do know. Mark Twain was reported to have said, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture they cannot understand. For me... I always notice the passages in Scripture which trouble me the most are the ones I do understand, <laughs> right? 
I mean, the truth is that most people would just get busy with the stuff they do understand. We've still got a lot more obeying to do, don't we? In fact, uh, I encourage you to maybe engage in this exercise. Those of you that are uh, crazy highlighters in your Bible, you know, there are people, if you're, if you're an obsessed highlighter, it's okay. Um, so there are people who highlight, they've got highlights in different colors, they've got underlines, they've got stars, they've got their whole system to that. So you may be one of those people. And as you read through passages, you know, you're highlighting, doing your thing with that. But sometimes just go through your Bible, just leaf through your Bible and, and do a study on the passages that you do not have highlighted. Because those are passages, for whatever reason, you or the people who have been teaching you have chosen to ignore. And so take a look at those. You know, you've gone over the highlighted passages a zillion times. There may be some other, in fact, there are some other things that God spilled some ink about those other things. And they might help put the the story together as, as well. But wherever those precepts are found, our obligation then is to obey those. But then, in addition to that, top of page 22, there are the precepts of Scripture. But there are also the principles of Scripture. I obey the precepts. Do this, don't do that. But most of the Bible is not that, is it? If it were, it would be a lot easier. But it would not be inter- here, it would not be personal, relational, and interactive. And this is why God has not made it that way. God designed us for Himself. And God designed us to interact with Him relationally, personally. And so I then have to grapple, and you have to grapple, with what God has made known about Himself in His Word and in His world, in creation. And I have to, on a personal, relational basis now, make determinations about those things that would please God based on what He has made known about Himself. So I obey the precepts, but most of the Bible is principle. And what do I do with that? I apply the principles of Scripture. You know, I love it when there's a blank. And we get to the blank, and I say at the top of page 22, but I just keep yapping for a while. And I'm looking at you guys' faces, and you're all going, okay, the blank. (laughs) No, really, go ahead, the blank. And I can see hands twitching and stuff as people are just... And if I just hold off for another couple of minutes, we'll have people fainting, and just having seizures, just waiting to get that blank. I love watching you guys with that. All right, you happy? Apply the principles of Scripture. And so we're not asking what's wrong with it, we're saying what's right with it. But, but how do I do that? Well, I've got to develop a personal grid of biblical principles for making biblical choices. So create an inventory of biblical principles. So uh, things like this. Um, I stole this from John MacArthur. John MacArthur has got, and they used to be in these notes, and I don't know how they disappeared. I actually had them listed in here. So I think our master printer did not like them, and he, and he took them out. That's what I think. And I'm going after our master printer at some point. I'm kidding. I don't know where they went. But So I, I'll get them for you. I, I am going to print those for you and bring them next week. 
but there are 10 of them. And as only John MacArthur can do, they all start with the same letter. They all start with E. But they're very helpful. It's an inventory of principles gleaned from Scripture. Things like the principle of edification. And the question, edify means to build up, to construct. So the question then is, will this build up my spiritual life and or the spiritual life of others? The principle of edification. So I'll, this is a good and right decision for me to make if it pass, is consistent with the principle of edification. Or the, the principle of enslavement. Will this be something that will trap me in ways that will distract me from doing other things? You know, so I'm going to make a purchase, let's say, a recreational purchase, that in order for that purchase to be justified, in order for me to get my money's worth, I'm going to have to use it X number of times every year and probably X number of weekends How's that going to affect my ability to pursue the mission? That's the kind of question you want to ask yourself based upon that, that principle, principle of encroachment. So MacArthur uses a thesaurus to, to get them to all start with E, but encroachment. So how, how does, does this decision potentially move me closer to the world, encroach upon worldliness? as opposed to godliness. So he's got ten of these. I'll give them to you on the, on the list next week. Okay, But they are principles gleaned from Scripture that have to be applied as you and I encounter our decisions. So you create an inventory of biblical principles. And I've given some biblical examples of Scripture itself doing this very thing. Laying out teaching, but laying it out in a way that gives for us what's important to God in Scripture and then requires us to make application to the particular circumstance as to whether or not we will or we will not. And I have that for you on page 22. You see these passages that relate to dietary controversies, meat offered to idols. And as you read what's listed there, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians uh, 8, those are passages that many of you are familiar with, but they have to do with, should I eat this stuff or not? And if you notice, as you read those, there's not an absolute yes, you should, or no, you shouldn't. You have to make a decision about that. You've got to apply principles. You've got to interact relationally with what Scripture has given you about God and what's important to Him, and then make a decision about whether I am convinced this is the right thing to do. So Romans 14, should I eat certain kinds of foods? And Paul has a whole discussion, the entire chapter, about whether you should do that. And he discusses those in Romans 14 that have a weak conscience, those who have a stronger conscience, those for whom their conscience will allow them to eat and those for, uh, that uh, cannot. And he says you should not violate this biblically informed conscience. Now why is, it, why is it sin to violate your conscience? 
a biblically informed conscience. Why is it sin to do that? Because if your conscience is unsettled about whether you should do something and you go ahead and do it, then you are making light of God's standard. You're, you're, you understand this might be wrong, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. And that's why it's sin for us to violate a biblically informed conscience. So Paul goes through that whole thing, Romans 14. And people are at different stages of how their conscience has been informed by the precepts and principles of Scripture. And so people are going to make different choices about that. He talks about how we need to respect that among one another, each other. But then he summarizes it in verse 23 of Romans 14 this way. Whatsoever is not, you guys remember this? Is not of faith is sin. That's the whole verse. And that's the summary of the whole thing. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, what does that mean? The Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, summarizes that verse this way. When in doubt, don't. Because you are not convinced it's right. Whatsoever is not of faith. Now, how does faith relate to that? Do you remember what faith is? According to Hebrews 11 and verse 1? It's a, it's a, it's a conviction about certain beliefs. I believe this is the right thing to do. I'm convinced this is the right thing to do. And if you're not... If you don't believe that, if you're not settled in that, then you cannot make light of God's standard by going ahead and doing it. When in doubt, don't. Whatsoever is not a faith of sin. But that assumes I've, I've done an evaluation of it. And then come to a conclusion. And if I'm unsettled in that conclusion, anything other than I am settled and convinced that it is right means don't. Very direct principle from Scripture. When in doubt, don't. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. But then you have a food controversy in another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And of course, what Paul writes in Romans 14 applies across the board, but he gives still further principles to this idea of meat that has been previously offered to idols. And that discussion begins in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and it ends in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. It's a discussion that goes for three chapters. The whole thing goes for three chapters. Now, how do I know that? Here's how. Because if you read the 16 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, just do a, a cursory reading through them, you'll find them, those 16 chapters laid out in these two major categories. In chapter 1, in verse 10, Paul says, I have been told by some from the household of Chloe, that there are divisions among you. And so I am now going to address those divisions that I have heard you all have. And he goes on and starts addressing those divisions. Some say I'm Apollos, Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some Peter, some Christ. You all remember that? You guys are so divided you're going to court against each other. So he addresses that all the way through chapter 6. And then it comes to chapter 7, and then it starts this way. Chapter 7 and verse 1, now about the matters you wrote about. So there are the snitches from the household of Chloe, 
who told on you, and I heard from them what you guys are doing, and I'm addressing that. But then there's now the matters you wrote about. So apparently there was what he had been told, and then there was what they had written to him to say, help us. Now about those matters, and then chapter 7, he begins to address those matters. And the first of those matters is marriage, divorce, remarriage. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. And this language is very important. Now about food sacrificed to idols. So chapter 7 says, now about the matters you wrote about. The first one of those is apparently marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And now apparently the second matter they wrote about was what do we do with this meat that's been previously sacrificed to idols? We like to eat it because we get it cheap at the market. Once it's been offered to a pagan god or goddess, they sell it out the back door and we get it cheap and we like that. But we know it's been offered to a pagan idol. Should we continue to eat this? That's their question. And he goes on for three chapters about that. Now about food sacrifice to idols, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And he goes on to talk about that, and he concludes it at the end of chapter 10 with this famous verse that we never connect to food at sacrificed idols. We say whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do it all to the glory of God. But the reason he says whether you eat or drink is because of that. Because it started all the way back in chapter 8 talking about food that's been previously sacrificed to idols. And he's concluding by saying, now whether you eat or drink, whether you decide to eat it or not, here's the principle. Do it all to the glory of God. And in between, he's told you what doing stuff to the glory of God looks like. And here's what he tells you. Doing things to the glory of God looks like giving things up for the sake of other people. Doing things for the glory of God means there are times where I'm going to refrain for the sake of somebody else. And he says that in chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 8, okay, you know and I know it's just meat. I'm paraphrasing what he says. And you and I both know it's a good deal. And if it's just you and me, go ahead and get the good deal and eat the meat. Because the idol isn't real. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8. And the meat is really just meat. So you can go ahead and buy it and eat it. But it's not just you and me. It's you, me, and other people who don't know what we know. And that's why chapter 8 starts out in the King James, knowledge puffs up. Remember that? That is, I know this, but if you're not careful, you can use your knowledge to be prideful about it and say, look, I'm going to go ahead and eat it whether it's a problem for you or not because I don't care because you shouldn't be such an idiot. You should know what I know. And the fact that you don't know what I know is your problem, not mine. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, no, your brother or sister's problem is your problem. Because we're connected. And in chapter 9, he gives examples of this in his own life. 
look, I'm not just telling you all to give stuff up for the sake of other people. I give stuff up for the sake of other people. And in chapter 9, he talks about the rights that he has that he has not used. Things that he could do but has chosen not to do for the sake of other people. One of those was taking a wife along with him on his travels. I mean, Paul's an advocate for marriage. But he says, I've chosen not to do that because I know that for some people that's going to be an issue. I've chosen, he even says, not to take money on 1 Corinthians 9. Even though the Old Testament principle that you should, you should feed the ox that treads out the grain is valid, I've chosen not to do that. And he uses this phrase, we did not use any of these rights. Even though they are clearly rights for the sake of other people. Then he goes on into chapter 10. And in verses 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, take a look at what it says. If you have your Bible, just take a look. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. He says in verse 23, all things are lawful. And in the NIV, that's in quotes. Or all things are permissible. But not all things are constructive. He says again, he repeats, all things are permissible. But I will not be brought under the power of any of them. So all things are lawful. All things are permissible, says the NIV. It's in quotations. Why is it in quotations? Because it's a quote from these guys. It's a quote from the Corinthians. That's what they say. Okay, as we're having this discussion about stuff we can or can't do, I'm saved. You were the guy who came and preached that, for heaven's sake. You visited Corinth. You spent 18 months here. Remember that, Paul? (laughs) You're the guy who told us once you get saved, you have free grace in Christ. So now all things are permissible. I mean, assuming it's not sinful, directly sinful, then all things are permissible. That's them saying that. And Paul's answer to that is, but not all things are constructive. Not all things build up. Build you up and build somebody else up. And not all things are good for you even if they're not inherently sinful. This was such a big deal that 1 Corinthians 10 is actually the second time you have that said. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, you got the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, same thing. All things are permissible. Yeah, but. All things are permissible. He repeats it again. Yeah, but. Okay? And then he concludes the whole thing. So whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, now as I make a decision, I've got this principle. And what is the principle? The effect of my actions on other people. And how does that relate to the glory of God? The effect of my actions on other people. Well, here's how. If you were here for our first hour... I said, love always looks outward. 
Love always looks at the other person and what they need and what's good for them. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up the other person. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians 8, what he's saying is, do what love requires. What's, what's in the best interest, not of you, not what you like to do, not what are your rights, what's best for other people that God has brought in your circle of influence? And that's what I, Paul, have to do in practice. And how does that relate to the glory of God? Do you all remember what the glory of God is? The glory of God is his character. It's who God is. And chief among God's character qualities, his attributes, 1 John chapter 4, God is love. If I'm going to emulate God, then I'm going to have to be somebody who loves. I'm going to have to love in my relationships. I'm going to have to love in the choices I make in those relationships. And that means the issue is not just, do I have a right to it? The issue is not just, is it inherently sinful? The issue is not just, can I afford it? The issue is not, it's not just that. The issue also involves the people that God has brought in my circle of influence and the effect of what I do on them. So, as I go through that, I have to develop this inventory of principles. Edification, the list I'll give you next week. Enslavement, encroachment, all of that, based upon passages like this. And this is the way most of Scripture is written, isn't it? Two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. Two-thirds of it is story. It's narration of what happened to other people. And what you're to do and what I'm to do is go through that narration, that story of God's interaction with His people and glean principles out of that that we apply to ourselves. That's what we do in our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class next year, next semester. But in 1 Corinthians 10, that's exactly what Paul says. He talks about Moses and the Israelites going through the Red Sea and God leading them with the pillar of cloud in 1 Corinthians 10. He reminds them of that narrative. And then he says, these things are written for our instruction as an example to us. So we should use those stories, use those narratives, derive those principles, and then make application of them to the circumstances at hand. You go, man, I liked it better when people just told me what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do, okay? This sounds like a lot of work. I mean, I get these principles. So, And this is why, frankly, this is why, I mean, I'm amazed at how many churches there are that are led by pastors who are dictators. And they dictate every aspect of the congregation's life. And if you think I'm making that up, I am not making that up. They just dictate. I, and I've known people who have been under pastors who when they go on vacation, they're lost. I am not making that up. Because he's not there to tell them what to do. There are churches like that all over the country. Most of them, by the way, Baptist. So, uh, but, but why do people do that? Why do people go there? Because it's easier for somebody to just tell me what to do. Just give me the list and we'll get on with it. 
But God has not revealed his will primarily in lists. He's done it primarily in stories of his interaction with his people. Because you were made to have a love relationship with God. And transact with him. And make decisions in light of what he has revealed about himself and about you, and about what he's called you to do. And then develop principles, the bottom line of which are, what's right with it? Is this something that will please God? And is this something that will display his character? And is this something that will advance me in his mission? That'll change the way you make decisions. Some of you, we've got we to quit here. We, two minutes ago. Some of you have mapped out your life. Your life. I'm going to do this for this many years, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to move there, and then I'm going to... And none of those things are wrong. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it turns out to be different than the plan you had for your life. Yes. <laughs> well, and, but even, let's, even if it did work, the question is, does that plan have next to each point on the plan, the timeline, does it have principles that you've gleaned from God's Word that say, this is going to advance the mission. This is going to display God's character. And the truth of the matter is, what most of us do is we just lay out our timeline because we like our timeline. So if you want to choose in a way that's pleasing to God... You're going to choose in a way that's consistent with the principles that he's given you about who he is, who you are, and about our mission. All right, page 23 next week, we'll look at God told me to, I think. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for our time and your word and the way you've laid it out for us to have to grapple with what you tell us about who you are, what you are like, and what you like, what you desire, what you want, and who we are and what our struggles are and how they are, even as your children, sometimes in conflict, because I want what I want rather than what you do. So Lord, help us to be people who confess, be people who are honest. Help us to see our own hearts in the light of your word. And then help us to evaluate what you've told us to do, what you've given us to accomplish, and the choices that we make in the light of that. Lord, help us as we try to develop these principles, to develop them in a way that are clear and helpful and applicable. And go with us this week as we seek to honor you in the choices that you in your sovereign providence choose to confront us with. May we make them in a way that displays your character, that honors you and pleases you. Grant us safety, we ask. And bring us back next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.